You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Well, here we are, friends, our final episode in a church membership class made for podcast. I just have a few final things to go over with you. If you are contemplating joining Resurrection Presbyterian Church, Uh, Again, I'm speaking of things that are particularly relevant for our local church and for prospective members of it, Uh, but I do think that there are principles I've been trying to capture uh, that apply in every Christian's life and uh, potentially with any local church. So I hope uh, that's been profitable for all uh, Resurrection Life listeners. Now, last time I went through the membership vows that are part of our life Uh, here at Resurrection. And I was concerned not only to consider their contents, but also just more broadly what it means, why it's so edifying and biblical uh, to take vows as you join a church. But I don't think that I uh, addressed everything there was to say about those vows. And I have uh, been very aware that they're could be a couple of particularly significant questions that I have left unanswered. So let me anticipate some of those now, and I'll start by uh, putting it uh, this way, anticipated question, what was that bit in the membership vows about submitting to the government of the church? Uh, That would be a very fair question to ask as I went over those membership vows last time. It's clearly referenced in the fourth of those vows. The language is this, do you promise to submit in the Lord to the government of this church? Now, folks, some form of this kind of vow is found historically in all kinds of Presbyterian churches, not just resurrection or the denomination we're a part of. Uh, And I would go so far as to say commitment to being in submission to spiritual leadership, uh, that's not unique to Presbyterianism. But it's a fair question to ask, since we are talking about a Presbyterian church, uh, who or what is the government uh, that's being referenced in this vow, submitting in the Lord to the government of the church? So... uh, As a Presbyterian church, the government of resurrection consists of three kinds of people uh, placed into church office. There are ministers, also called pastors, there are elders, and there are deacons. And each of these three offices in a Presbyterian church have uh, what we call spiritual authority. And that's actually manifested in another vow that the whole congregation takes any time a man is uh, being ordained and installed into office in the church. So, for example, for the office of elder or deacon, the members of the church on his occasion of his ordination uh, are asked this question, do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive this brother as an elder or a deacon, and do you promise to yield him all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord, to which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles him? Now, folks, what lies behind that view of office in the church being one of spiritual authority uh, is the fact that church authority uh, does find itself in the scriptural teaching as one of five authority structures that God has ordained uh, for our world. Uh, Those five authority structures, uh, I'm not going (laughs) to be looking at those in this podcast, but just by way of reference, uh, (coughs) excuse me, parental authority uh, is the most basic, Uh, marital authority Uh, is also clearly taught in the Scripture, the authority of uh, husbands over their wives. Uh, Civil authority is taught in the Scripture, uh, the duty of subjects uh, to the king or to the governor, uh, depending on the form of civil 
uh, a government that's in place. Uh, then there's what's sometimes called economic authority. I've also taught in the Bible uh, the responsibility of servants to their masters or employers. Those are four, and the fifth authority structure in the Bible, uh, we all live in these authority structures in one way or another, is ecclesiastical authority. Now, I'm just making a point about this. I think primarily because uh, we live in an age in which authority is uh, not a popular thought. Uh, And uh, though not only church authority, in some ways uniquely spiritual authority is coming uh, under pretty severe censure in our day. It's uh, not something we all as Christians in evangelical America have a category for, you might say. So I think a sentiment that could be very uh, common in many genuine Christians' minds is, well, sure, uh, churches need leaders. Uh, they need people who are going to make decisions about how things go in the church. Sure, that's 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 all well and good. And uh, someone might go as far as to say, yeah, pastors and elders are, well, they're counselors, they're supposed to give people encouragement and advice, but, and I think this would be a very common sentiment, uh, they don't have actually any authority in my life. I mean, I don't have to do what they say. Right? <laughs> well, not according to the scriptures. To put it quite simply, wrong. Uh, let me back up and say that Submission to the authority of the church uh, in the Bible looks like more than one thing. I, I think I could sum it up in three ways. Three things that submission to the authority of church leaders uh, looks like in the biblical teaching. Number one is an attitude, most basically, of respect uh, and high esteem. So, First uh, Thessalonians 5, verse 12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So Paul is calling on the Thessalonian Christians to recognize spiritual leaders in their lives. There are leaders of the church in Thessalonica that he's writing to, and he says to them, respect them. Uh, and, to, and he says, esteem them very highly. And that, of course, is a heart attitude that is uh, most basic to any kind of submission to authority, respect, and esteem. Um, There may be all manner of things that are uh, worthy of critique in your spiritual leaders, uh, but there will be a restraint on the part of um, members of a uh, a biblical church uh, from being critical uh, and censorious about their leaders because of this admonition of the scriptures to render them respect and esteem uh, because they have been placed in that position of authority. So that's one level. A second is, well, I'll call it a readiness to listen and learn. Uh, Submission to spiritual authority looks like uh, that further attitude or heart set of being teachable, being a uh, having a teachable spirit. Uh, the Bereans are famous for this in the Bible. They receive the word of God from the apostles eagerly, and they search the scriptures as they receive that word eagerly to ensure that what they were being taught was biblical. That's a perfect balance. They aren't skeptical. They're not resistant. They're not closed off uh, to what the minister of the word is saying. But they also are, uh, as they receive it eagerly, wanting to see that it's conforming to the Bible that is the ultimate authority. I just point out that uh, most of the times that authority in the church is manifested in Christians' lives, it's not going to be by ministers or elders or deacons just ordering people around, God willing, not. It's not going to be uh, by making directives. Uh, The most prevalent form of authority or use of authority in the church is counsel. It's giving advice. 
And submission to that authority looks like being eager to be led, eager to be taught uh, by those that are spiritual uh, leaders uh, in your life. So respect and esteem, um, a readiness to listen and learn. Uh, But folks, uh, the scriptures would would add a third uh, level or aspect of, of submission to Uh, church authority, and that's actually a willingness to obey all biblical exhortation. Uh, So that word obey is found in Hebrews 13, verse 17, where the writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I want you to let that sink in. Uh, The writer is clearly telling us uh, that we have a a relationship uh, with our leaders uh, that calls for, at times at least, obedience. Now, all elder authority, all ministerial authority, like human authority, is, as we say it, under God. And the fourth vow at resurrection is acknowledging that when it says, will you submit in the Lord to the government of this church? So, folks, that means that we in spiritual leadership at Resurrection realize we wholly embrace the fact that wherever there might be a conflict between church authority and God's authority, we know which takes precedent in every Christian's life quite rightly. So, Peter, for example, came into conflict with the religious authorities of his day when they forbade him to preach about the resurrected Christ. And he said, we must serve God rather than man. He uh, showed us very clearly what is the right way when there is a conflict between church authority and God's authority. Uh, Protestants uh, feel this very keenly in light of the conflict, the clash that men like Martin Luther uh, faced uh, between church authority of his day and the authority of the Word of God. So, uh, the elders of resurrection, I want to affirm uh, quite plainly to you, we are very careful in the use of the spiritual authority God gives to us. Uh, We're very careful in what we require and what we forbid. We know uh, that that has to be something demonstrable uh, from the Scripture, What we ask of members of resurrection is that you not hasten to the judgment that you are um, in the place of Martin Luther. Uh, Here I stand, I can do no other. Um, To uh, quickly come to the conclusion that you must serve God rather than the elders. Are you, in fact, uh, facing that kind of conflict? Or is it the case The elders are doing exactly what they are supposed to do and what they are seeking to do, which is to minister uh, the Word of God to you uh, and to call for what God calls for and to forbid what God forbids. So uh, that's a, a very short overview of what submission to the government of the church looks like biblically. This is a biblical teaching. And I'll just add at this point something that's really quite important about Presbyterian church authority. Um, The government of the church, to which members promise to be in submission to in the Lord, uh, is not in Presbyterianism merely the ministers and elders and deacons of that local church. And the fact that it is not merely local is a great advantage for every member of the church. Uh, So you may know this, but Presbyterian church government, where we get our name, the word presbyter in the Greek is elder, that's what it means. Presbyterian church government is organized into local uh, churches, uh, as I've just been speaking of, also a regional church, we typically call that the presbytery, and then even a national uh, church. We call the gathering of ministers and elders once a year in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, a general assembly, and that's the highest authority structure in Presbyterianism. So here's why that even should matter uh, to you if you consider membership in a Presbyterian church. 
should there ever be an unbiblical use of authority in a local Presbyterian church, listen carefully. Every member, any member, has the right to appeal uh, to the presbytery at large to intervene uh, if there is something unbiblical being done by local pastors and elders. Every member has that right. There is a process laid out for doing it, and uh, it can even go beyond the presbytery. It can go to the full governing body of the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the case of our denomination. Now, thankfully, that is a very rare thing to ever, ever be part of a church member's life. Thankfully, it is quite rare, and it's uh, a good thing that it never, it, 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 it uh, seldom needs to be taken advantage of that particular right of appeal. But I want to point out that there is something that's not rare. It's actually something very pervasive uh, in local Presbyterian churches uh, that is the result of this um, process of appeal that's been put into place. Uh, And that, folks, is that pastors and elders and deacons in local churches, if they're Presbyterians, know that they are accountable for everything they do. They're accountable for the way they exercise their spiritual authority. Uh, You may not know this, but they're required to take minutes, as we call them, or notes of every meeting of the uh, elders. And those notes of their meetings are reviewed by their presbytery. And um, that's a, a standing form of accountability that local church leaders have uh, in Presbyterianism to their brothers in the broader church. Now, that's something that most members of local Presbyterian churches never think about, and you might think nev- they never feel the effects of. But I would submit every Presbyterian church member feels the effects of that in as much as their own local officers are mindful that they do not exercise authority without themselves being under authority. They're accountable uh, for the right use of their authority. So, uh, all this under the heading or the question, what is the government of the church in a Presbyterian church, and what does submission to the government of the church look like? I hope that you can see that this vow is seeking to capture something that particularly in the New Testament, letters to the churches is very clearly taught uh, about spiritual authority in the local church. Now, here's a second question I'm anticipating. It would be a very good question to come to your mind uh, in light of, again, that fourth vow, and that is this. What is this thing you're calling church discipline, and how does it work? So the fourth vow does not only say, do you promise to submit in the Lord to the government of the church? It doesn't only say, you promise to participate faithfully in its worship and ministry, but it also concludes this way, and in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life, do you promise to heed its discipline? Now, church discipline, thankfully, is an irregular part of church life. It certainly is at resurrection. Uh, It is quite the exception to uh, the rule of our weekly church life. But uh, Presbyterians put the prospect of church discipline right up front uh, for prospective members, no less. As rare as church discipline is, we actually want every prospective church member to have considered that this is a church that practices church discipline. And we actually want uh, prospective members to think about what it would be like to come under church discipline and how you would respond. Now, uh, once upon a time, much earlier in my ministry, uh, I have to be honest with you and say I I was a little bit uh, chagrined that we as Presbyterians put this up front uh, so clearly, I said, I believe in church discipline and so on and so on, but it, it, it's really such an uncommon part of the life of the church. Why do we have to actually talk about it? 
uh, when folks are being received into membership. Well, folks, I have since come to see the wisdom of our Presbyterian fathers. Uh, And I'll try to capture some of that uh, as I continue. I think there's good reason that they actually place this before prospective members, even as they take the step of joining the church. By the way, I'm going to summarize some things here that I develop at greater length in another sermon series uh, that I preached some years ago at Resurrection uh, on the subject of church discipline. If this is something that uh, you still want to learn more about, uh, go to our church website, go under resources, go under the tab The Basics and Discipleship, and you'll find uh, a three-part series on church discipline. But here, for our purposes today, let's just say that in in the broadest sense, on the one hand, uh, church discipline is simply elders holding the members of the church accountable for the keeping of their membership vows. So, in its broadest sense, uh, my friends, church discipline is generally invisible, at least to the church as a whole. In its broadest In its most common form, Uh, so for example, um, a couple who's having marital difficulty comes for marriage counseling. It happens uh, more than you might know uh, in uh, a faithful local church. And if in the course of that counseling, that pastor in love points out certain sin patterns in him or her or both, uh, folks, in the broadest sense, that's church discipline. Discipline is just a subset of discipleship, and any time a spiritual leader in love points out sin that needs to be repented of, you might think of that as exhortation, reproof, maybe even something stronger than that by way of a a verbal rebuke, Uh, but that's a form in its broadest sense of, of church discipline. Say an elder takes one of the men in his shepherding group out for uh, coffee and and brings up something he's seen, maybe a pattern of anger in that brother towards his children that is a concern to his elder. Folks, um, it's just coffee, and it's just a conversation. But in its broadest sense, that is church discipline at work. Uh, And it's encompasses anything that the spiritual leaders of the church do uh, to try to draw members' attention to their sin that needs to be repented of and to point them uh, in a way of more faithful obedience. Discipline is just a subset of discipleship in its broadest sense. But having said that, in a more narrow sense, and now in the less common part of discipline in the life of the church— Uh, Church discipline becomes a process by which ultimately someone is removed from church membership as a result of serious and unrepentant sin. That's what we call formal church discipline. It's a process, as I say, that is laid out in our denomination's book of discipline. We have Uh, a little manual for how to go about doing this in a way that's biblical, in a way that protects uh, everyone's rights and is fair. It's called the Book of Discipline. And folks, a formal process of church discipline uh, does, or I should say can, if the individual being disciplined is never repentant, can come to a public uh, state in which the whole congregation is now involved uh, in that public uh, or formal church discipline. Where do you get that in the Bible? Someone might say, "Well, glad you asked, <laughs> uh, folks." There is, there's more than one, more than two actually, but there are two primary biblical passages uh, that guide faithful Christian churches in this process of church discipline. The first is in Matthew 18. It's our Lord's own words. Uh, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But if he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. You hear this getting more public? It went from private to something now public. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Matthew 18, 15 to 18, is a key passage that shapes uh, the process of discipline in a Presbyterian church. So also is 1 Corinthians 5, very different set of circumstances. It's uh, the Apostle Paul speaking. Uh, but listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, for a a more detailed exegesis of these passages, you can go to those sermons that I preached that I referenced just a moment ago. But just note a couple of things for our purposes now. Uh, In these cases, I hope you can see, first of all, it's serious sin that's involved that is the occasion of formal church discipline. So in the Corinthian case, it's a scandal, a sexual scandal indeed, uh, that Paul says would even raise the eyebrows of pagans. So it's something scandalous. It's a serious sin. And it's also clear it's unrepentant sin that's involved when someone is formally disciplined by the church. He's or she's not willing to listen, even to the church, as the church takes part in exhorting and admonishing uh, that wayward brother. Folks, um, serious and unrepentant sin, that's the kind of sin that undermines what we call the credibility of one's profession of faith. You know this. It's one thing to confess Jesus Christ as Lord in front of the church, but that confession needs to be lived out in practical ways all during the week. And if it's not, that profession of faith and obedience uh, in Christ and to Christ becomes actually a scandal. So, what are the steps of formal church discipline? Well, it begins, as uh, you saw from Matthew 18, with private uh, admonition, uh, typically by elders and pastors. It then becomes public if there's not repentance, official session, as we call it, the elders' official public admonition, and sometimes with that public admonition of um, the unrepentant church member, there goes, uh, sometimes there goes along with that uh, what we call the suspension of privileges of the table, so that individual, for a time, in light of their unrepentance, uh, is told you may not come uh, to the table of communion uh, with the rest of the church. You're admitted to the table on the basis of your profession of faith, but if your life comes to be in direct contradiction with your profession of faith, then you can't continue uh, to come to the table. Ultimately, formal church discipline uh, culminates in what we call excommunication. It's uh, what Paul's referring to when he says, let this one be removed from among you. They're removed from membership in the church, not just having their name taken off the roll, but uh, the church is exhorted to view that individual with love and a desire now for their salvation because they can no longer, in light of their life, view them as a brother or sister in the Lord. It's an act of love by the church uh, to change its posture towards that individual, no longer seeing them as a brother or sister in the Lord, but seeing them uh, as someone who needs to be evangelized, needs to be called to Christ, because his life 
has, represent, has demonstrated he's not a follower of Christ. Now, uh, some of my listeners may have never in their life seen biblical church discipline carried out uh, in the way that I've described. And maybe you don't know what you think about it all. Let me say this to you, if I may. I submit to you that it's the church's failure to exercise faithful biblical church discipline that lies behind the most common uh, insult offered against Christians today and the church in particular, that it's full of hypocrites. Isn't that the most uh, popular, uh, the most um, common accusation by those outside the church who have no patience for the church? It's to say they're full of, it, the church is full of hypocrites. And of course, that can only be true, ultimately, if the church has failed to be obedient to Christ and to the apostles in carrying out this thing we call faithful church discipline. We do that in order to reclaim the one who's in sin. It's a process of love trying to regain that person uh, to Christ. It's also um, a way of uh, giving uh, a warning to the congregation that this is not a kind of life that's consistent with um, Christian uh, profession. But folks, the most important reason uh, for church discipline is ultimately just to preserve the honor of Christ. A community of people who call themselves Christians, but who live like the world, does great dishonor to the name of Christ. So churches without church discipline become places that dishonor the Lord Jesus. So, uh, as sobering a subject as this is, uh, I want to say to you, as we wrap up this uh, portion on uh, church discipline, folks, you don't want to be part of a church that A, doesn't take membership seriously, I submit that to you, and B, you don't want to be part of a church that doesn't take church discipline seriously. Uh, consider the alternative. Consider the church scandals that uh, we hear about, even in the public media, whether it's Catholic or Protestant. Um, these are examples of places in which uh, churches, in some cases, are becoming hard to distinguish from the world. And that's one of the reasons why our Protestant fathers, in particular, considered church discipline. Uh, to be faithful, biblical church discipline, to be one of the essential features of the true church of Jesus Christ. So I don't apologize for this uh, as I have uh, matured in my ministerial instincts. I rather uh, think it a very good thing to take the time to talk about a very important part of the life of the church, even if it is somewhat irregular and if it is, even if it is painful, it is an important part of biblical church life. Well, let me anticipate a third question that moves us forward into some things that are a bit more pleasant, and that is, how does baptism relate to church membership? That would be a great question just in light of verses like Acts 2.41, which reads, so those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there is a connection in that passage between the sacrament of baptism and those who are joining the church. I think that's a reference to what is happening here in, in Acts 2. They're being added to uh, the number of those who are already part of the church. So this is a good time uh, to speak, although briefly, uh, to the practice of baptism at resurrection. Let's talk first about believer's baptism in a Presbyterian church. Presbyterians believe in believer's baptism, sometimes called credo baptism. Uh, I believe, credo. Um, Acts 8, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
So for those making public profession of faith for the first time, uh, baptism is part of their joining the church uh, at resurrection and at every faithful Christian church. No one can be rightly considered a member of a Christian church without baptism. That's the role of baptism. It marks out those who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. Some have called it the sacrament of initiation. And in light of things I've already talked about in this class, you'll understand when I say it marks out those who are in covenant with God. So if you haven't been baptized, and if you want to be a member of Resurrection Presbyterian Church, you're going to be baptized as part of that process. By the way, I should point out, uh, we do not re-baptize Christians at Resurrection Presbyterian Church. It's important to say because uh, there are many parts of Protestantism that apparently do. If you, however, have been baptized by a true Christian church, doesn't have to be Presbyterian, we at Resurrection will accept that as a legitimate biblical baptism, and we actually consider it would be a great error on our part uh, to baptize you again. It would be in in effect, to be suggesting that the church that administered that baptism isn't a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do not want to suggest that. We do not in any way want to suggest that. More significantly, uh, we don't rebaptize because we believe that God meant what he said the first time. And baptism is a sign of what he says. It's a sign of his promise of salvation to those who believe. And he meant it the first time. We will not uh, undermine the certainty of what he said in that baptism by trying to duplicate it, to, to, uh, to, to have a redo, if you will. So, uh, where does that ever show up? Well, uh, sometimes someone who's baptized as a child, maybe even as an infant, uh, comes to regard his or her actual conversion to be much later, say, in college, uh, and sometimes it's their instinct to want to be baptized again because, well, they believe they were just converted only recently. Uh, as Presbyterians, uh, we just point out to such a person, uh, friend, God has been faithful to his promise in your baptism those many years ago. He's been faithful to that. His word has been fulfilled in your life, even though it was years later. And uh, that's why we we won't be uh, redoing your baptism. We'll be rejoicing that as you have put your faith in Christ, the thing signified by your baptism of so many years ago has come to be part of your experience. So, if you've never been baptized as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that will be part of your reception into membership at Resurrection. And indeed, when we're receiving members uh, with uh, their baptism, Uh, That's an especially joyous occasion. God's promises in the gospel are being put on display, and the whole congregation is uh, blessed by it. So that's believer's baptism in a Presbyterian church. Now, let's talk about household baptism uh, in a Presbyterian church. So as I've been saying, Presbyterians receive individuals into membership by baptism when they are old enough to profess their faith As they are baptized, we call that believer's baptism. But Presbyterians also receive whole families into membership by baptism. If there is one or more member of a household who's unbaptized, as that household comes to us uh, to be received into membership, well, joining the church by that family involves multiple baptisms on that occasion. It's a wonderful thing when that happens. And by the way, as I've already pointed to it in this series, we believe that's what's happening in the New Testament and the household baptisms that are recorded there. Whether it's Cornelius, Acts 10, or Lydia, Acts 16, or the Philippian jailer, Acts 16, or Stephanos, 1 Corinthians 1, each of these individuals uh, have their households baptized with them. So children of believers are received at resurrection into church membership with their parents. They're just as much members of the church as their parents are, uh, even though their own individual profession of faith may come later. Um, 
Folks, I've already gone over the biblical reasons for this, theological reasons for this. It was in that podcast in this series, number six, The Kids uh, of the Covenant. I'll just point out now that uh, household baptism doesn't just look like a whole household being baptized at the same time, although that's a wonderful thing when it happens. It may also simply look like the most recent member of the household being baptized. So, in other words, the baby in the household uh, being born into a Christian home, that baby is baptized in a Presbyterian church. That baby's baptism, uh, sometimes called infant baptism or pedo-baptism, could also be called uh, household baptism in as much as the baby is being baptized because he or she is a member of that covenant family, that household. Now, this will not be applicable to everyone interested in membership at Resurrection, but if you are a parent uh, and you are coming with your children and they are being baptized as part of your coming into membership, uh, there are vows that you take as parents uh, in the submitting of your children uh, for baptism. I am going to include those vows uh, or a link to them in the show notes of this episode, and uh, they really do warrant more close attention than what I'm giving them in this podcast. Uh, but I'm going to encourage parents who are prospective members of Resurrection uh, to look up another podcast, um, if you don't mind. <laughs> it's one from my parenting series. It's parenting number nine. And I think I referenced it a little earlier uh, in this series, but it's called Your Baby's Baptism. And there I go through those four vows that parents take as their uh, children are received into membership by baptism uh, with them. So, if you as a parent uh, have baptized, I'm sorry, if you as uh, as a parent have been baptized as a disciple of Christ, but you have children who've not yet been baptized, well, their baptisms will be part of your family's reception into membership at Resurrection. And that, too, uh, is a joyous occasion, as God's promises in the gospel are signified to you and to your children. I'll just note that uh, privileges and responsibilities of our children as church members uh, do increase with age. In a Presbyterian church, uh, in particular, their admission to the Lord's table comes when they are old enough to profess their faith. To have that uh, interview I'm about to talk about with the elders in which they share their own faith uh, in Jesus Christ. They're helped by that, by the communicants class that is offered uh, at Resurrection every spring and every fall. Uh, they interview with the elders, and the time comes when they take uh, their vows uh, before the congregation. You could call that their First Communion Sunday. So if your children are old enough when you join to make profession of faith with you, then they'll be admitted to the Lord's Supper from the outset of their membership in the church. But Otherwise, they'll be baptized for now and received into membership uh, by that baptism with your whole family. But at a later time, uh, they'll transition from being baptized to what we call communicant members. And at resurrection, uh, that varies according to the uh, family and the individual child, but often it's somewhere between 7 and 10 years of age. So that about baptism, a happy subject indeed, uh, and its relationship to church membership. Here's my last question I'm anticipating uh, in this last podcast on church membership. What are the next steps? That's what I'm anticipating someone ask. What are the next steps for those who've decided they want to join Resurrection? Now, I, I dare say deciding on the church to commit to, if there is a hard part in all this, that would be the hard part. Uh, But folks, joining a Presbyterian church isn't hard at all. And uh, there's really just three steps, uh, and they're quite simple. One is the membership interview. Just reference that. Uh, The membership interview is when you 
sit with two or three of the elders of resurrection, and you are given opportunity by them to share with them, well, most basically, how you came to uh, know of Resurrection Presbyterian Church, what lies behind your desire to join the church, uh, but more significantly uh, than those sort of get-to-know-you questions, uh, a question about um, what being a Christian means to you, uh, what the gospel is, uh, how you are or have come to be uh, confident that Christ is your Savior and Lord. In other words, we're asking you for your Christian testimony. And the elders who meet with prospective members are content with very simple expressions, uh, but we want to hear from you uh, how you have come to Christ and what living the Christian life uh, means uh, for you. So that's the interview with the elders, and I'm assuming a successful completion of that interview. We move to step two, uh, where this is applicable. We communicate with your former church, if you have a church that you've been a member of before you came to resurrection. This is an important step. Um, We encourage, actually, uh, prospective members to do their own communicating with their previous church. Say you moved from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Uh, to Matthews, North Carolina, um, communicate with your home church in Tulsa uh, where you found a a new church home and that you intend to join there. Uh, But that's something we will do as well as elders out of a a, a courtesy at the very least uh, to our brother um, uh, brothers in ministry in that local church. We will let them know that we are prepared to receive you into membership on the basis of your own testimony. And uh, if it's a church that is in a formal, what we call fraternal relationship with us, um, another Presbyterian congregation, uh, we have, there are several denominations that are in fraternal relationship with our denomination, well, then the process will actually involve a transfer of membership. We'll ask uh, your f- previous elders to transfer you as a member in good standing from that church. If we don't have those kinds of Uh, formal ties with the church you're coming from, we'll simply be in communication with them, uh, letting them know uh, of the step that we're about to take, and um, presuming that they have no objection to it, of course. If they do, we're certainly willing uh, to hear uh, that objection. The third step would be a public reception into membership. It's the taking of the vows that I have been uh, spending so much time looking at with you in this latter part of this class. You would be invited Uh, to come and stand before the congregation, your whole family and all those members of the family that are old enough to make public profession of faith, they will take those four membership vows and the congregation will take their own vow uh, as part of the receiving of you into membership. Uh, It's a happy occasion, to be sure. And uh, we normally invite uh, the new members uh, being received on that particular Sunday to choose a favorite psalm or hymn and uh, we'll sing that on the occasion in your honor and in uh, rejoicing at what the Lord has done. Well, I hope that sounded uh, fairly simple to you. Uh, it is a pretty uh, easy thing to do to join a Presbyterian church. It's kind of like becoming a Christian. Uh, with uh, the grace of God, becoming a Christian is really quite easy. It's just turning and uh, crying out, um, putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty easy to become a Christian. The hard part is is le- l- uh, sorry, living the Christian life. And I certainly don't um, want you to think that being a member of a church is always invariably easy. That's uh, that 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 longer term work of living in fellowship with other sinners. That that has its moments to be sure. But I hope that um, I have been persuasive that um, being connected in covenant with other brothers and sisters who make the same profession that you do and are committed to the same Lord that you're committed to is so great a blessing. It's actually vital uh, to our spiritual health and vitality. (coughs) Excuse me. My friends, there's no doubt any number of other possible questions you might have, and I'm not going to spend any more time trying to guess what they might be or to anticipate them. I simply will make myself available to any and all uh, who come to this point and have more questions. Come and talk to me, and face-to-face, we will 
uh, consider any remaining questions you might have. I do think this is where I need to conclude this membership class via podcast. Some of you, again, listening uh, without being in any kind of position to join Resurrection, I hope it's been nonetheless helpful uh, to survey some of the realities of your own church membership where you are. But if you are considering membership at Resurrection, I hope you're a little more prepared, a little more informed about that decision. And I simply say to you, the ball is in your court. Uh, Prayerfully consider uh, membership at Resurrection Presbyterian Church. I would be delighted uh, to discuss this further with you. As I continue with Resurrection Life in the weeks ahead, I'm actually going to take a brief uh, break from podcasting after a couple of weeks. Lord willing, I'll be resuming my podcasting on my bigger project of parenting, and particularly parenting teenagers uh, and young adults. I'm aiming to wrap up that whole parenting project by the end of this year, and uh, I'll be moving on to other things, Lord willing, Uh, in the new year, 2024. Friends, uh, as ever, I'm humbled that you uh, tune in, and I trust that you are encouraged uh, above all. For my friends, Christ is risen. The Lord keep you. You've been listening to another episode of Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. This is a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone you know. Thank you for joining us.